Welcome to the Daily Bolster. Each day we welcome transformational executives to share their real-world experiences and practical advice about scaling yourself, your team, and your business. Welcome to the Daily Bolster. I'm Matt Blumberg, co-founder and CEO of Bolster, and I'm here today with Linda Finley. Uh, Linda is a global e-commerce and DTC leader who has held leadership roles over the years at Etsy, at Evernote, at Alibaba. Uh, she's currently the president and CEO of Blue Apron, uh, which is a meal kit company. Uh, they deliver pre-portioned seasonal ingredients to help you create delicious meals at home while reducing food and packaging waste. Linda, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. So um, I love doing these uh, Friday in deep with interviews um, to really talk uh, with someone about the arc of their career. Uh, there's so many different uh, paths that people take to uh, to the CEO seat and so many different lessons uh, that they've learned along the way. Uh, so I'm excited to talk to you about that today. And um, you know, it was interesting when I went to look at your LinkedIn profile, you and I have known each other for a while, but not 20 years or 30 years. Um, and I, I learned some things about you. So uh, <laughs> I, I knew that you had worked at Alibaba. I yeah. did not know what you did before that. Um, so you started your career uh, with a couple of different roles in PR. Yeah, I did. Uh, so uh, let's talk about that. How, uh, how was the early part of your career um, the training ground for you to join a massive, massive uh, company, Alibaba, in a leadership role? Yeah, it's interesting because I actually really early on started out as a journalist and I just loved the concept of communications and how important communications is in every aspect of life, whether it's personal relationships, business relationships, et cetera. And so I was, I became really, really um, interested in communications early on and moved from journalism into PR, corporate communications, et cetera, um, particularly on the strategic side. Because I always used to joke that anytime there's more than one person in a room, you're going to have confusion and I'll always have a job. So <laughs> that was uh, that was sort of the initial kind of concept behind it. But the reality is that the interesting aspect of PR and communications is it is the intersection of business, media, influence, and how people think about those interactions and how they actually move forward. So... I really loved working in the communication side because I was able to see a variety of different business situations. I worked on product launches. I worked on IPOs. I worked on crisis communications. And I did a lot of global work. Um, so a big part of my work was bringing cultures together and helping to think about how to communicate between the two. But all of that was really, um, as I grew in that career, I started managing a PNL. I started managing multiple offices. I started managing multiple teams all over the world. And as I was getting into that PNL management, it really struck me that I loved the business aspect of being able to manage some of those decisions. At the same time, you're also matching the fact that your job in communications is to always anticipate what the customer, the public, the investor, et cetera, is going to ask next and be a couple of steps ahead to assume, to be able to understand what that is and bring transparency to kind of what's happening. So, um, so I started out my career that way, but just really, really became fascinated with operations through my later roles of, of running um, larger teams and groups and P&Ls and wanted to make that move. And honestly, the move into Alibaba was a fantastic one for me because I was able to start out on the communication side 
with the knowledge and the full disclosure that I wanted to move into business operations role. And, um, and one helped the other, you know, we did five acquisitions the first year that I was doing communications there. And that naturally led into a lot of the business synergies that, um, that we were, we were growing globally as the company was becoming a much more global company. So it was really a, a very natural transition. I thought. Did you ever have a, a moment before you went there um, of thinking like, hey, PR is going to be my career. And what I'd like to do is start an agency or, you know, grow in the ranks to to run an agency or or was that, you know, was was there a moment where you were like, yeah, I, I need to I need to figure out how to exit the train? You know, it's interesting. I I always knew that I wanted to take a leadership role. I always knew that I wanted to be a CEO. And I think I did sort of assume that it would be a CEO of, of an agency. But what I really discovered as I got further along into the strategy aspect of communications, and again, you know, really starting to do things like setting new, you know, a new course or strategy for a company, um, is I love being close to the product. I love being close to what's actually being built because the product is where it's at. And that's and that's kind of how people really get to understand a brand, get to understand a company and and they're they're voting with their dollars. Like they are actually buying their product, um, buying your product based on the fact of of, you know, that's their vote. Um and and so it, I don't know that I I I never thought about starting my own agency. Um that wasn't really something that I was interested in doing. I really love transforming and taking teams that um, are already strong and great and figuring out new ways to sort of develop that. But um, but I did think about leadership, but then I just got very excited about being able to really change product direction and, and drive new product initiatives. Um, that, that was what got me most excited. So what was your second job then at Alibaba? You started there in a comms role. Yeah. And, and uh, what did you get promoted uh, into? Yeah, so I moved into um, what was called international business development and marketing, where basically it was everything outside of um, China kind of bringing together buyers and suppliers and driving both the partnerships and the marketing um, and just the general corporate development of thinking about the expansion of the next phase of, of Alibaba. So I worked for the B2B unit. So I worked for Alibaba.com, the original um, part of Alibaba. And, and that was a really exciting move for me because a big part of what we were focused on was driving the global strength of the company. You know, it wasn't as well known when I joined the business outside of, um, outside of you know, what you might have heard of either through Yahoo's investment, et cetera. Um, it wasn't as well known. And so this was a, a major time at the business as the global business was really taking off. And that was a big part of my job was helping to shape that through connecting buyers and suppliers, even beyond the China relationship, um, anywhere in the world to anywhere in the world. That's so interesting. And were, you were living abroad, right? You were in Hong Kong? Yes. I was living in Hong Kong for four years. Yeah. Um, did you ever get to meet Jack Ma? Oh, yes. On a regular basis. Yeah, I, I assume in, in both of your roles, you probably were close to him. What, what, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's, um, a business leader that uh, I think everyone knows his name in the U.S., but people don't necessarily have, have like have his vibe the same way. Like if you ask someone here, tell me three things about Steve Jobs, you know, yeah. business in tech in the U.S., they'll give you a bunch of things. Uh, what yeah. what what is he like, and what was his kind of management style like? Yeah, I mean, incredibly innovative, incredibly calm, um, very very focused on being able to to think ahead of the curve. 
and um, and really just extremely um, extremely willing to take chances, but not in a not in a bad way, in a in an extremely positive way of really sort of seeing around the corner and saying, "Hey, I think we can do this. I hate, I think we can do that." But his his sort of centering philosophy was was prevalent throughout the entire company. It was very big on culture in the company, very big on bringing people together um, across Alibaba, very big on cross-training, very big on developing people within the organization. Um, but yeah, I mean, a, a, an incredibly inspirational leader. And because of when I came into the company, I had the opportunity to work very closely with him. Yeah, that's that's uh, it's it's always interesting to hear what people uh, what people like that are actually like. Yeah. Um, uh, so, what uh, drove the move from Alibaba to uh, Evernote, where you were the COO, and and I'm guessing moving back from Hong Kong yeah. to California? Well, it was interesting because when I, um, you know, I was moving back to the United States um, after four years, and and had the opportunity to continue on with Alibaba, but you know, the center of gravity, I, really, for what I do, you have to be near headquarters. Um, and so, um, and so there was a lot of back and forth and I will, I will forever always be indebted to, um, to that company and still love to go to the alumni events and everything else. Cause it really is almost like a university. Like you're just, you're so connected to the people that you work with. But, um, during the time that I was living in Hong Kong, I got to know Evernote through another friend who had introduced me to it. Cause, um, that person knows that I'm an organizational freak and I really like to have everything at my fingertips at all times. And, um, and so uh, talk about talk about having passion for your product, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, and and it was interesting because I hadn't heard of it at the time, but he was a power user of Evernote. He introduced me to it and also asked if I would be willing to talk to the the CEO about expansion into Asia, China, um, Taiwan, Korea, et cetera. Um, they were already incredibly well established in Japan um, and and very popular there. But just wanted to be able to give some some casual advice, and so I did. But as part of it, again, being passionate about what I do, of course, I tried the product and immediately fell in love with it. Um, it's an incredibly, incredibly useful product, and it just for somebody who doesn't like to have a lot of things and pieces of paper and stuff laying around, it was the perfect solution. And so I'd gotten to know the company, gotten to love the product, and when I was moving back to the United States, I actually reached out to the CEO at the time and said. Hey, listen, I'm coming back to California, you know, would love to just talk to you about what you're doing and would love to, um, to hear what you're working on and see if there's any way that I can help. And, and that's how I wound up at, at Evernote. It was, uh, immediately coming into a global role where I was able to, to bring some of that, um, work that I had already done in, in Asia together, um, with, you know, the rest of the world. And what what was the company kind of size, shape, stage when you got there? And and actually, what where what is it today? I, I've just kind of lost track of it over time. Yeah, so it's about a three hundred per. It was about a three hundred person company at the time that I was there. Um, it was definitely in high growth mode. I joined when it was around fifty uh, million users, and I left when it was two hundred million users. So. It scaled pretty quickly, mostly through the partnership side. Then it, there wasn't a huge amount of marketing in the business. It was a lot more um, on sort of carrier partnerships and and some of the great work that the team was doing there. So um, so yeah, I mean, it was just it was a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. I think the thing that very few people know about Evernote was eighty percent of the user user base was outside of the U.S. So hmm. you had 
a huge amount of work that you're doing across Japan, um, China, Brazil, uh, Europe. It was just, you know, on a plane all the time. And it was just a lot of fun. Um, really, really cool partnerships at that time. Um, Evernote actually was recently acquired by um, an app development company. And so they're now taking it over and they're, um, and they're building it out, um, building some new features across that and a few other apps. Uh, but that's been a bunch, bunch of years since you left. Has, did the company continue its sort of path, independent, still founder-led? Uh, no, 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 no. Um, no, again, it was acquired, I think, two years ago now. Okay, right. Maybe last year. Um, but um, but yeah, it was, it was acquired by an app development company that's um, that's really taken that piece over. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's evolved quite a bit over the years. But I still talk to people every day who use it all the time for all of their notes. What was the um, best part about being a COO and the worst part about being a COO? <laughs> um, I mean, being a COO is great. It's it is you you have such an ability to make an impact across so many parts of the business. Um, I will say, I think the worst part about being a COO, and I actually did a, a, a talk on this once um, on different types of, of COOs, and there's multiple types. That was, was going to be my next question is what- Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting because the worst part about being a COO is it's a different role everywhere. Right. So, um, so it's always hard to explain to people when you, if you just say, I'm a COO, then- that's only like this tiny bit of the story. Almost every other role is pretty clear on when you talk about it. Yeah. But it's the role that has multiple definitions. And so establishing the right definition of what that role is for that company at that time is actually, I think, the most um it less or the least fun part about it because it's it's not there's not a an easy explanation or an easy path. Like you have to shape what's right for the business at that time. Yeah, but it's probably the most important thing to do, um, right? For role clarity and, and such. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny when our team wrote Startup CXO, um, we have, you know, there's a section on sales and a section on marketing and a section on finance. And um, we we went round and round and round on, on what the COO section should look like. And we just gave up. Um, right. <laughs> because of that, like there is not the same job anywhere. So we, there's like a four page section on COOs that basically says there are lots of different kinds of COO. Yeah. Um, and that's, and, and, but it, it's true. And I think to your point, that's why defining it is so critical. You have to define what it is for that business. Otherwise it causes more confusion than help. Yeah. So uh, you were a COO twice in a row. Yep. Uh, so Evernote, and then you got recruited by our mutual friend, Chad, Yep. Uh, to come be the COO at Etsy and pick up your life and move to the East Coast. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the difference in the two flavors of COO? You know, it's interesting. The roles were actually very similar because both of them were centered on how do you bring together all the customer touch points into sort of a single type of role where you can you can help make sure the consistent experience across the entire um, you know, whether it's customer support, whether it's uh, product marketing, et cetera. Um, so I think the roles were very, very similar. I will say the difference between the two is the um, Evernote role had a lot more of a partnership bend to it um, in the work that we were doing, because that was a big part of how you got scale from an app perspective. Whereas Etsy is much more about community and bringing communities together in a marketplace model. So you actually have physical goods moving around, even though you're not touching them. 
And so that was a much more marketing heavy role than um, the Evernote role was um, just because of the phases of the companies and the types of products that they actually had. But um, but the other big difference is, you know, Etsy was at a pretty big inflection point when I joined, you know, I came in at a time where the company was resetting itself and thinking about a new world of competition and a new world of, um, of sort of, of focus. And, and so that was, um, and it was a public company. So, you know, a, a whole different level of, um, of accountability, but an incredible, incredible opportunity and an incredible team building out really, really unique products, which was great. Yeah, um, so uh, so Chad has uh, has been on the Daily Bolster a couple of times and we talked a lot about uh, about the journey at Etsy as well. Um, so what were, um, and one of the things he talked about was actually that uh, the difference in revenue composition from when he left yes. uh, to when he took the CEO job, which was yes. six years, was pretty significant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and I actually think that's um yeah, that's one of the real challenges that that scaling companies have is how to introduce new revenue lines that are um that are big enough to matter. Yeah. Uh, right. So Etsy, when you were there, decent scale, public, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in GMV, um, if not billions of dollars in GMV. Um, what's what what's an a, an example of one or two um revenue lines that you introduced and um, and how did you think about sort of innovating within to make an impact quickly enough? Yeah, it's actually interesting that you asked that question because I think it's more important to talk about the revenue lines that we didn't introduce. Um, and and what I mean by that is uh, one, and this this speaks to this idea of focus, which I think is incredibly important. And when you have big opportunities, you're often looking at multiple ways that you can extend. And one of the big decisions that we had to make as a business was, um, was there was a new site that had been launched that was specifically about craft supplies. Most people were buying craft supplies already just on the, the core site. And we wound up actually sunsetting that site and working it into the core part of the business because what had happened, and, and Chad and I used to talk about this all the time, and, um, and then also later Josh, um, who was the CEO when I left, um, but there was a lot of um, focus on building some of these new areas, but over time, fewer and fewer people were working on the core website. And so oftentimes the first place you should look in any sort of pivot or transition is at your core business and can you make more out of that core business? And, um, and that's really where a lot of the growth opportunity came from was reintroducing new features for buyers in the core business so the, the business started really with a, a strong focus on sellers um, and building the tools for sellers, et cetera. And, but a big part of what sellers wanted were more buyers. Um, so driving that sort of shift of putting a lot more resources on the buyer experience was one of the big pivotal moments at Etsy, um, which was driving revenue, but driving it through something that was already there, um, kind of a, a, a magic bean, if you will, that was already present in the business. Yeah, that's that's a great point. It's it's the things you do and the things you don't do uh, that yeah. kind of define yeah. define your tenure. So, um, so let's move to your current role. So you're the CEO of Blue Apron. Mm -hmm. um, you have been in that role for four years, five years, four and a half years, four and yeah. a half years. Um, and so it's your first CEO role. Mm -hmm. um, it's um, a public company, so mm -hmm. high, higher degree of difficulty dive. 
mm-hmm. um, and uh, also a little bit of a turnaround. Uh, I think we, even when you when you joined, oh yeah, uh, not to mention managing a company like that through the pandemic. Yes. Um, talk about the last four and a half years. <laughs> what's worked? What's been tough? What's been unexpected? Yeah. What's been great. I mean, it's a very big question. So it was definitely a turnaround when I came into it. Frankly, as was Etsy when I came into Etsy, um, a different type of turnaround, but uh, but a turnaround nonetheless. And I think um, a lot of what you sort of think about when you think about focus and when you think about building new products and engaging new customers um, has has been really critical for the business to actually grow and um, and have strength. But the reality is, Nobody expected COVID. And I think there's a little bit of an interesting challenge there because when I joined the business, I knew that we needed to build new products and we needed to increase variety and we needed to focus on the core. We needed to use what we already had because in the competitive landscape, variety and choice um, was really the, the way that you drove growth. So we leaned heavily into that and it was incredibly successful in that we drove um, more product innovation or more product launches in 2020, um, which was the first year of COVID, than in any other year in the company's history. And then again in 2021. And this resulted over time by adding variety. When I started, there were about 17 choices, and now we're in the 80s in number of choices. And that's driven a significant increase in revenue per customer. So dramatically more revenue coming from each customer than before, you know, in the range of, you know, 25 to 30% more revenue per customer on average um, over that tenure. And so that's been an incredible strength of the business. And so being able to launch that variety, particularly during COVID, I think has been um, important. On the flip side, I think the challenges have been ones that we've talked about publicly quite a bit. The company was very capital constrained and, and um, was was managing you know a significant amount of revenue you know hundreds of millions of revenue on very little cash in the bank at any given time and so you're trying to both lean in and grow the business at the same time you're trying to manage that cash and then when COVID hit everyone thinks that this is a massive opportunity and it did drive demand for sure but this is a physical product you can't create it out of thin air. And it's packed in and made by human beings who were dealing with the same challenges as the, as the people who were staying home. So dealing with that, um, with the nuances of making sure everyone's staying safe, making sure you're still growing the product, making sure you're still growing the business, it's actually a really, really important balance. And we chose, given the capital constraints of the business, um, and given the fact that we needed to be competitive in the long run, not necessarily just in the short run, we chose to focus on continuing to expand the product set. And that's what's driven that revenue per customer and um, set us up with the ability to drive what I would say is an incredible you know, repeat rate. I talk about this on a, on a regular basis of people think thought of us in the beginning as a subscription business, but the reality is like you can skip any time, you can do whatever you want to do. You don't have to buy a box every week. So we're actually more of an e-commerce business. And so we're going for AOV, we're going for repeat customers, we're going for, um, you know, engagement, we're going for average cart size, we're going for all of those traditional e-commerce metrics. And when you think about it in the scope of most e-commerce companies out there that might have one or two purchases a year, the reality is, you know, we're, we're looking at five a quarter. 
And the average order value of those is, you know, above $70. So that's a very, very rich customer base. And now with the variety we have and some of the new products that we plan to introduce in the future, our hope is that we can capture even a larger TAM building off of that choice that we had to make during a very difficult time during COVID. Uh, yeah, I know. I remember some of your stories from, from COVID and, uh, uh, you know, just w worrying about uh, what was going on in, in your warehouse or just whatever yeah. you, however you refer to it. Yeah. Um, what, um, uh, what are some of the challenges? So you, you have uh, a workforce that's a little bit different than a lot of other tech companies, which is you have kind of the, the uh, in-office workforce and then the, uh, I don't know how you refer to them, warehouse workforce or yeah. pack and ship fulfillment workforce. Yeah. Um, how have you, um, how have you kind of re reconciled those two things or how did you manage them the same way? Do you manage the two groups differently? Yeah. It's it's interesting because there's a benefit to it because seeing the product end to end in the beginning was ex was extremely helpful, but um, this is particularly timely from a question standpoint because what we just actually executed was a, a very unique transaction um, about a month ago where we actually um, sold the operational infrastructure of our business so the fulfillment centers to um, another company called Fresh Realm that does nothing but fulfillment and manufacturing of fresh foods. And, and this has really been an interesting um, move for us because when you think about most e-commerce companies, when you think about, or even most just retail companies, most brands, they design their products, but they don't manufacture their products. They work with suppliers around the world to get the best quality at the best price, et cetera, um, for their customers. So having everything verticalized um, in the early days made sense because of the fact that, you know, you have to, there's no other, there, there's no one else making meal kits, so you need to do it all yourself. But now what we've actually shifted to is the ability to, um, to work with a world-class supplier of fresh food products who can provide other types of equipment and other types of product, um, product capabilities to us that we didn't have before because we had to own everything ourselves. Um, we now have the ability to work with them and, and purchase those through a traditional COGS model, like you would see with most companies. Hmm. And then the core business with the brand, marketing, customer support, um, product design, all still has all the same revenue, all the same customer interface. Like we were able to own the customer interface, really focus on that and, and save costs in the meantime, because through this transaction, we're able to um, to take what was a an unusual structure of having both the fulfillment and the um, and the core um, sort of tech and brand and and that part of the business, and actually let each one focus on its own strengths and um, get faster scale on the operational side of the business by combining it with another company that um, does broader food manufacturing. So it's it's been a really interesting last several months, but but that structure has just recently changed and allowed us to focus a lot more on the core business, which is serving our customers, developing great products, and, um, and really driving efficient marketing programs. That is super interesting. I actually did not know that. Um, so I'm clearly not paying attention to my keyboard feeds. <laughs> You've been uh, <laughs> did you think about doing it the other way 
right? So that's a pivot of, of like really doubling down on one part of the business and, and effectively exiting another. Did you think about the reverse, like being the fulfillment engine, buying that other company and and selling off the, the front end? Honestly, the asset of the brand is so massive for us. We have 82% brand recognition, which is huge. Wow. In this that is huge. Yeah. And, and so it's really about that customer experience and that ability to create that, that marketing engine and that um, customer experience engine that is really the 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 kind of core of the business in my mind. Yeah. So from our perspective, this was the right way to do it because we already had a great partner in Fresh Realm. They were already partnering with us on other parts of the business, and um, and so we knew we could trust them. We knew we could uh, work well with them, and this lets us really take that very valuable brand and um, and focus on customer uh, engagement and growth. Got it. Well, that is uh, that is very interesting. It opens up kind of a new chapter for you there. It does. Um, let me turn to the last topic I wanted to cover real quickly, which is boards. Yes. So, um, you, obviously, you have a board. You manage your own board, but you are on. You are an independent director on, I think, three boards: two, two for profit, one nonprofit. Uh, two for profit boards now. So I continue to do nonprofit work, but no longer sit on the board. Got it. So you're on Ralph Lauren, and uh, what's the other one? Uh, style seat is the other one. Uh, so how do you, as, as a CEO, so you have your own board, you manage your own board, um, how do you take on the role of independent director, not your company, some other CEO, um, sort of how do you, how do you think um, about adding value to, uh, you know, to those companies, um, you know, without having your hands in it quite so much? Yeah, it's it's interesting because board roles are um, are very different, you know, depending on the board and and the composition of the board itself. So some boards are very very hands on. Some boards, from a governance perspective, are much more hands off. But either way, your job is not to run the company. Right? That is not your job. And and I I love the fact that when you find boards that are a mix of operators and um, people who are former operators you wind up with a really interesting mix of people who already have their hands in something um, that's kind of moving on an ongoing basis. And then also people who have a lot more time to be able to spend on deeper issues that maybe they might've experienced in their career. Um, and, and so you get a really good balance there. Uh, so for me, it's actually incredibly helpful to sit on these boards because one of them is a very large public company, and the other one is a smaller, very agile, um, what I would call startup, even though it's been around for a, a period of time. And so you see all the different patterns and ways of working that different types of companies can go through. And then you can think about, how do I take these learnings as far as ways of working and approach back into my own board and my own job? But because I'm a current operator as well, um, you know, we were just talking about going through the COVID time period, like the world has changed dramatically in the last three years. And so bring, being able to bring real world current experience um, without necessarily interfering, but being able to say, okay, I, I've seen this, here's, here's something we've done here, here's how, how we've pivoted in this direction, I think is actually very healthy um, from an overall mixed perspective. But I always think the best board relationships are you always want to make sure you can dedicate the right amount of time. So you want to, you never want to overfill yourself to the point that you can't do the real work that needs to be done on boards. 
but you also want to make sure that you can um, make it a truly symbiotic relationship. You know, I get something out of being on the board as far as information I can take in and learnings that I can develop. And then um, hopefully I can make those companies um, a little bit better sharing the knowledge I have as a current operator. Yeah, I think it's a real, real best practice for CEOs to sit on someone else's board, at least one or two. And um, I, I'm the same way. I, I leave any board meeting of someone else's board with like a whole page full of notes of like things I need to go go do differently. So it's also a very good reminder when people say, oh, you should really do it this way. You're like, you know, I never want to say that to someone else because um, it's always hard to know what it's like to sit in the actual seat. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, all right. Linda Finley, thank you so much for joining me today and chatting about your career. Um, good luck with the next chapter of Blue Apron. Thank you so much. Thank you.